This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, West Virginia University professor Krista Paravani discusses how she was denied reproductive choice in health care for her children. She's interviewed by Senior Vice President and Women's Health Policy Director for the Kaiser Family Foundation, Alina Salganikov. Hello, it's so great to be here today. Um, I have to say that it's nice to meet you, Krista, although I feel like I almost already know you or know a lot about you. When I got the invitation to do this interview, I really felt like I couldn't turn it down. I've spent the better part of my career focusing on health policy issues that are important to women, everything from abortion to long-term care and everything in between, and really your lived experience as reflected in your memoir really has validated to me, at least, why my work on policy is so important to women, but not only to women, but also to families. And really, I just want to thank you for sharing your very difficult and intimate story. Um, While the story centers on your third pregnancy, your your most recent pregnancy, there's so much here that women are going to find familiar about their lives, no matter where they live or the circumstances of their lives. Can you tell us a little bit about your book and kind of what motivated you to write it? Well, um, uh, the book is called Loved and Wanted, and um, the catalyst for the book was an unintended pregnancy that I had when I was 40 years old and living in the state of West Virginia. I grew up in upstate New York and had lived in New York City for many years of my adult life and also in Los Angeles. But um, my family had moved from Los Angeles uh, to West Virginia, where I am a professor at West Virginia University. I teach creative nonfiction. And um, when we moved, we had a daughter uh, and five. uh, Well, actually, she was three and a half at the time. Um, uh, And uh, we wanted to add more children to our family, but I'd had a really difficult time getting pregnant. And um, we moved for the job because we were not making it in Los Angeles. We just, we didn't have the money to pay the rent there. Um, But soon after we arrived in West Virginia, we welcomed um, a second child to our family, a daughter. And uh, we're on our way with our family and I was still teaching. But um, a year later, while I was still breastfeeding our second daughter, I found myself uh, unexpectedly pregnant with a third child. And um, it was a surprise because I had a history of tubal pregnancies and one rupture. And um, I was terrified because we couldn't afford a third child. Uh, my salary would would not provide for a third child. Um, so uh, I contacted uh, my doctor. I was seen right away because I'd had that history of tubal pregnancies. And I was told when I went to the doctor's office that um, even though I'd asked uh, about it, that they didn't know how or where I would be able to get uh, an abortion if I wanted one. And that was totally shocking to me. I, I had, I I thought that that must that that can't be true, <laughs> but that is what I was told, and I and I left, and I felt completely defeated, confused, uh, distrusting of the medical system, uh, and I called a friend who was an activist doctor, and she told me that I needed to speak to another doctor. Just I needed to know who it was, and that she would be able to provide a prescription for RU four eighty six for me, and. Um, I was able to get in touch with her and um, I discovered that there were many barriers 
after that prescription. Yeah, I'm going to talk about those today. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Um, One of them was just, you know, basically telling me um, all of the bad things that could happen to me if I decided to terminate the pregnancy. And of course, this, this doctor is an activist and she believes in reproductive freedom, but this is the law that she has to follow. But then she also told me that um, had, if I had any complications that I shouldn't tell any nurses or other doctors because she met with um, uh, a hefty amount of uh, pushback at work um, for having prescribed RU486 for another patient and had been just, that had been discovered. So with that, I thought I live in a very small town and I I don't think that I trust this to uh, keep my privacy. And uh, I learned about reproductive health care in America at that point, Um, something that I, as an educated woman, am embarrassed to say that I did not know enough about at that point in my life. But I learned that the nearest clinic to my home in Morgantown, West Virginia, was about a four-hour drive. And all in all, with all of the restrictions, it would take probably about two weeks out of my life to go get that termination of pregnancy. It would require time off of work. It would require childcare that I didn't have. And there were so many hurdles in my way, not the least of which were just, you know, logistical challenges, but the shame that exists when a person tells Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that, that you, that comes through so clearly in your book. Yeah. So that is, you know, that is what that, that, that was, that was the seed for this book because I knew, I knew that I was not the only woman who had experienced that obviously. But I, I, uh, I thought, and, and, and we'll get on with the story and what happens later with my son who was born uh, that June. Um, but um, because I did have him, I, um, you know, I, I felt, I felt a responsibility to talk about uh, the story of reproductive health care in America through a personal lens, because there are so many books on policy out there. There are no bar- books, as far as I know, about a personal experience this way. And I, I needed to lend my voice to that. Yeah, there's a, an important study called the Turnaway Study, but, you know, and it has profiles of women, but it's yours is very much your story. Um, and um, the complexities and the layering and really it was very compelling. I was curious, you know, you start the book, it was the last day of my old life. And I'm interested, you know, I, I know and I haven't read yet, but I'm eager to read. You have an earlier memoir about the loss of your identical twin sister. Uh, my husband actually, incidentally, is an identical twin as well. So I'm very eager to read that. Um, but it was, you know, a very tragic loss to basically, as far as I, what I've been able to read, violence, um, depression, and heroin. Um, yet this, this moment to you really, you know, unintentionally getting pregnant at age 40, you had two small kids, a rocky marriage, um, to say the least, and really marked a sea change for you. What, what, can you talk a little bit about why this was just so pivotal? in your life. Yeah. Uh, so the book that you mentioned before, the, the title of that book is called Her, and it's a book about the loss of my identical twin sister, Kara, who had suffered uh, a six-year bout of serious depression after having been raped by a stranger in the woods near her house in Holyoke, Massachusetts. And um, she died of a drug overdose, but it was kind of a suicide, you know, in many ways. She, she was not able to survive the level of depression and anxiety that came from that attack. I happened to thought, I happened to think after 
after losing my twin, which um, you can understand, I'm sure, uh, it felt like losing myself. Uh, it, it, it was it was completely destabilizing to lose my twin, and um, I thought that was the hardest thing that would ever happen to me. <laughs> In so many ways, I hope it is. It's pretty hard. Yeah, it seems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can yeah. I can laugh if you can't laugh about things. Yeah. I don't know what we have, but yeah. So I can I can laugh a lot about it a little bit. But you know, when I say it was the last day of my old life, I'm thinking about what it means to be a woman in America and think that what you want matters. And that was the moment for me when I realized that what I what I wanted to choose for myself the agency that I thought I had didn't exist. And it changed me as a citizen and as a mother. And I, there is no going back from that. I, I don't, I don't think so that, that is where that first line of the book comes from. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That that's, that's, that makes a lot of sense because really you, you, you had very little control. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think one of the issues that you really captured really so poignantly was, we talked, you talked about this a little bit earlier, the shame and stigma that uh, women feel about abortion. And, you know, our society treats abortion so differently than any other health concern. We regulate it differently in terms of healthcare services. And so many women feel alone um, at a time when they really need to be supported. Um, and, and we fail them. Um, and, you know, this was captured, as I said, very eloquently in the Diana Green Foster's book about the turnaway study. Mm-hmm. But our society and our policies make it so hard for women to even reach out because they're so ashamed. And I felt like in your circumstance, too, I felt you were so alone in many ways, even though you were you had a community um, that seemed to be, you know, you found friends there, you were married. But it was a very solitary experience for you and shameful in terms of discussing it. It, it was. And, it, and, and that shame was multifold. The sh- talking about abortions, even, even amongst pro-choice friends, was not something that was done. I mean, my friends were pro-choice activists. They, you know, they went to rallies. They had children of their own. But they weren't talking about the necessity for their own abortions. They weren't even sharing their abortion stories, which is more common, on, honestly. I mean, I have so many friends, and I'm so glad that women feel able to share their abortion stories. And I feel like that's something that's changed in the last, you know, five to 10 years. There's been a lot of work and, you know, yes. I mean, anywhere between one in three and one in four women have an abortion over their lifetime. But yeah. we definitely don't talk about it. We, we're starting to. But. We're starting to, but we definitely don't talk to mothers who wanted to have an abortion and didn't get one. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. I think, you know, that's the thing about this book. It announces itself on a taboo yeah. for many reasons, because I want a better world for my children and for women's health care. And I feel like the only way to do that is to articulate that, of course. Um, but we, we can get there. But, you know, the thing is, so there was shame in admitting that I, that I, I didn't think I could afford a child. So there was that shame, you know, the shame of telling my friends. So I have this life because money is also not a polite conversation that we have. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's not something that people are talking about, but it is definitely a concern that women have when it comes to deciding whether or not they, they would like to continue or terminate a pregnancy. And 
um, and of course you know this, but you know the majority of women who seek a termination of pregnancy are already mothers and they do so because they cannot afford to bring another child into their families. And they're thinking about what happens to the children that they already have and how they will provide for those children, you know, food, shelter, education. Um, so there was, there was that, the shame of not being able to admit that I couldn't provide for that third child with the salary I had at the university. Um, which says something about what we pay teachers. Absolutely. <laughs> and the fact that your husband had the same job and earned more money than you did. Yes, he had the same job and he earned more money than I did. And that was just was like job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, there were many other men that earned more than me too. Yeah. Um, and still do, frankly, um, even after this. But um, so there was that shame. Um, there, but the, the the shame that was confusing to me. Was the sh- was the shame of being told that uh, I, I I didn't have access to termination in my town, and then the shame of being told that I needed to keep it secret, and then the hardship of having to you know jump through hoops of fire to get to Charleston to have that termination of pregnancy. It wasn't until after I had my son that I understood that that shame had bound me in this way to make me feel that the thing that I wanted to do, which was completely in my legal right, was wrong. And that the desire that I had to terminate the pregnancy was wrong, even though it was a mother's desire to protect the daughters that I had. But it but it lived inside of me. And, it, and it, I don't, I don't know that it, I don't know that it does anymore, <laughs> but it's, it's a hard thing to evict, you know, and it, it carried that shame carried itself out through the birth of my son as well. Um, but it wasn't something I was able to articulate until after he was born. And it's something that I was also, because I knew, so, I knew so few women who had gone through this experience who I could discuss that with, because it, it seemed totally illogical to them when I tried, you know, but you could have done this, but you could have done this, but you could have done this. That's what they said. But when you're held in place, you're not doing anything. <laughs> and that's exactly what these laws are intended to do to women. It's called, it, if, it, you know, shame freezes them from being able to make the decision to terminate their pregnancy, whether it's the right thing for their families or not. Yeah, I, I um. I hear that that type, you know, over that type of message over and over, you know, in society. And it's interesting, I just served on a National Academy of Sciences Committee on Sexually Transmitted Infections. And they say the only thing that's more stigmatized than STIs are is abortion, mm-hmm. you know. And so, you know, that's one of the, you know, issues I think that many are trying to overcome and to speak openly about it. But I know for many women, it's very hard. Um, and in many times, it's very they do the opposite of what you do. That's a difficult time, and they they put it in a box. They don't they don't share their abortion stories mm-hmm. with other women. Mm-hmm. So I think you know hearing your story, I think will be very um, helpful. I wanted um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your visit. It's not Doctor X. It's the first doctor. I was trying to keep track of the doctors. Yeah, I didn't got, want to. You got your confirmation of pregnancy mm-hmm. um, because I really. Um, kind of found that like so difficult to read Mm -hmm. um, how you were treated um, at that, um, at that visit. I'm a little, I was a little mystified why you got a transvaginal ultrasound at that visit, but it makes sense if you had a history of ectopic pregnancy that they wanted to rule that out. But that is not typically 
the standard of care for an early visit. And, you know, many of the abortion restrictions require women to have an ultrasound, even though there's no medical evidence that they need it um, early in pregnancy there. Um, it sounded a little bit like if you kind of took it out of the, the context of a uh, you went to see a doctor that you almost went to a pregnancy crisis center mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for that visit. Talk, talk a little, tell us a little bit about what that visit was like for you. Oh, well, I mean, and of course, I just, I'm sure some viewers don't know what a, a crisis pregnancy center is, but so let me just say briefly yeah. that in Morgantown, we have more pregnancy crisis centers than we have, uh, you know, uh, centers where you can go get a prescription for RU486. Apparently, there are other doctors who will prescribe RU486 in Morgantown, but they are also working undercover as well. But we have two crisis pregnancy centers, and those are centers that are set up to um, make it so uh, women uh, will will be convinced to keep a pregnancy that they thought that they were going to have a consultation for to hear the options for the termination of pregnancy. Um, but that is exactly, I had not thought of it, but that is exactly what it felt like. <laughs> I, I, I actually think they would have been much nicer at a crisis pregnancy center than how you were treated. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great point. And I think that- I mean, you know, you were just <laughs> left there anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, I, I've thought about it a lot because I was either the, the doctor who saw me was, uh, an upper level medical student. And I, I don't know that he was trained in bedside, in bedside manner, uh, for women who were interested in terminating a pregnancy, but, um, you know, there was, there was no discussion in that, uh, meeting between the two of us of adoption or, you know, what would happen in the case of fetal abnormality. It, it was just, no, I can't help you. Uh, and not even, I'm sorry that you feel afraid because I was crying. <laughs> it was just no good, goodbye, Godspeed. Um, which I wonder, I've wondered since then, what, is that, I wonder how many other women in this country have that experience and, you know, in care. And it seemed like, uh, it, it seemed like an anomaly to me at the time, but, but now I see it differently. I, I see that we live in a country where that is excused in, in, in office. Well, I'll, I'll tell you that the current policy around the Title X program, which is the federal family planning program, is that women, the client, the clinics are no longer required to give non-directive pregnancy options counseling to women. Um, and they are not permitted to offer referrals um, to abortion providers. So, you know, a lot of, I always think about, you know, if you go to, I can't imagine going to a doctor and they detect a condition where you need to get a specialist or another, you know, more advanced care. And they say like, you know, I'm sorry, I can't give you a referral. Um, you know, that that kind of violates standards of care, yet we are asking our clinics to do that very thing for abortion services. So, um, you know, and then the fact that you were just kind of left there, I just kind of, I could really see the image of you sitting in that room waiting for somebody else to come, like, is this it? Are we done? <laughs> yes, you know? I was. I couldn't believe it. Um, yeah. So that was really, um, I thought that was kind of just really put an image in my head also about what we're, what we're asking 
you know, providers to do and why so many providers have left the Title X program. About one in four clinics are no longer participating because they don't want you to experience these, their, their clients to experience these very similar types of services. I wonder, I wonder too, in that situation, because I felt this way then, I thought, and, and, I, it, and I've known this growing up as a woman, you know, in the medical, in the American medical care system, which is women are not often listened to in, uh, in doctor's offices and, or their concerns are not taken seriously. And part of me thought it, am I hearing this correctly? Because this, this, this is, this is against what I know to be legal. So, you know, there's also a moment in which I think with the doctor in that situation, which a woman will internalize what she hears from the doctor, instead of thinking about the insanity of what has just been said to her. Yeah, well, I think it it really comes out so clearly in some of the policies we have about the pre, um, you know, the counseling that women get and the information that several states require that is actually just not true mm-hmm. um, about the consequences of abortion, um, the negative consequences. And in fact, we know, and I've been involved in a National Academy of Sciences study that shows that actually abortion is extremely safe. And a lot of the information that we're, you know, that states that policymakers are requiring women to be told is not really true informed consent in the way we all, you know, support informed consent, but really is misguided and basically untrue information that they are providing women that is actually making them afraid and again feel unsupported and unconfident about their own decision and their own agency. Right. And, and it's in these policies do not help it help women feel that they have the ability to make the decision to, to, to continue that pregnancy to begin with. You know, these, these laws are not creating pots of money for women who are worried about supporting their children to begin with. And that is that is a tragedy. Yeah. You know, you you write, I think, really in compelling detail about all of the kind of the policy and personal factors that can push you to want to have an abortion and at the same time ultimately foiled your efforts to try to get one. You say, the very reasons I wanted an abortion, exhaustion, lack of funds, dimming sense of self-determination and confidence were the things that made it nearly impossible for me to get one. I should have seen how easy this all could have been, but I didn't because it wasn't. You know, and, you know, all of the the things that you had to factor in that just seemed, you know, you read them and you're like, well, you could do this, 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 and this, but all of this together um, just makes it so difficult. Mm-hmm. It does. And, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in a little bit, but had Keats been born in a different situation, I don't know that I would have come to that conclusion because we are told as mothers to forget the desire, you know, the desire to have the abortion, but you have your son now and look how beautiful he is. And he's beautiful. (laughs) And I do love him. And he is a wanted member of our family, (laughs) but that doesn't change any of the things, you know, that you just read from the book. Those are realities. Yeah. Being I actually wanted to ask you about that because how do you respond to abortion opponents who would argue that all those efforts to make abortion access difficult were successful in your case. Mm-hmm. If you don't get an abortion, eventually you will learn to love this. You'll, you'll make it work. 
What, what, how do you respond to that? Well, mothers must make it work. That's one thing. Um, there's that. The thing that I learned in this pregnancy, um, delivering my son uh, in West Virginia, he was born with um, severe medical complications. He had a uh, broken clavicle, which was not diagnosed until he was five weeks old and out of West Virginia and into ca in California where we had left because my husband had been offered a job there right at the end of my pregnancy. But he was also... Um, he suffered from a severe lip and tongue tie and was unable to latch at latch at all. I was feeding him with a medicine dropper um, and his jaundice was severe. It was so severe that he really needed to be treated in hospital for that jaundice. But because the hospital was overcrowded, he um, we were asked to leave, even though uh, he really needed treatment. And I was told to put him under a window at home, even though it was a heat wave and it was 92 degrees in my house because our air condition was broken. Was broken. So um, he was failing. My son was failing. And I had this son that I, you know, had difficult beginnings for me, obviously, because I didn't know if I could support him. But my, you know, my feelings of rage for myself at that moment as a woman switched to uh, rage for my child who was not getting proper, proper medical care. And what happened was I dedicated months of my life to looking at policy and realize that children who were born in states that curtail reproductive health care have have babies and children, infants with uh, poorer medical outcomes and higher levels of mortality. And I uh, felt that, you know, there are many people who do not agree with uh, a woman's right to choose. And I, you know, I don't call them pro-life. I call them anti-choice. Uh, but I, I think that Anyone is hard pressed to say that our children do not deserve adequate medical care. <laughs> so if these policies are leading to children not having adequate medical care. They need to be stopped. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. You just said that he was failing, but I, the way I view it is the health system yeah. failed him. The health system failed him. Despite your efforts and your persistence, to try to advocate on his behalf. And I think, you know, I had a similar uh, situation and I my daughter was born in California, so it doesn't just happen in West Virginia. No, and she was born with a cranial malformation and um, they kept telling me, no, you had a difficult labor. It was all about molding, you know, and her head will get back. And no, she had a cranial malformation and at four months she needed to have surgery to correct her skull and she's fine. But, you know, it was one of these things where as a mother, like, you, you know, and, you know, really it's so incumbent upon um, our healthcare providers and our families to listen to us. And so often we don't listen and support women and our policies mm -hmm. fail to do that as well. And you, you know, you have the, the manual for how it's done. <laughs> You know, in the and I, I didn't know, I didn't realize that then. What I did realize was that the months that had come before my son Keats was born had destabilized me in a way that I did not feel that I had the voice that I'd had my whole life, and that my ability to advocate for him, which I did, I found it 
my rage, my rage returned. <laughs> but I, I, I had been diminished enough that I did not know what to believe at all. And uh, I, I, all, I believe that had I had, you know, my agency intact, that experience would have been much less traumatic for me and much less traumatic for my son. So, you know, this is a book about women's healthcare in many ways, but the catalyst for the writing of this book is the suffering of a child, a male child, not a female child. And the issue of reproductive healthcare is an issue of families. It's not an issue of women's choice completely. Yeah, I wondered if you could actually read from page uh, 30 here, starting with, I've been wanting to say this. Sure. I've been waiting to say this for more than 20 years. When we talk about choice, we've been forced to abandon nuance. There are stories of women who need to have an abortion because their baby is incompatible with life or because their lives are at risk. We hear those women and we should. That quandary is neat, obvious. No woman should die to give birth. But what about the healthy pregnancies, the unwanted ones? I'll tell you what I believe. Nobody goes to a clinic or a doctor and joyfully ends a pregnancy. Nobody wants an abortion. They do it because they're broke or alone or need to care for the children they already have or because they can't raise a baby. There's no room, no support, no will. They'll be bound to the wrong partner or place or job. There's no cruel, callous, or godless disregard for innocence or the sanctity of life. There's no forgetting what ending a pregnancy is, what it means. Abortion doesn't stop when it's banned. American women resort to unsafe abortions in the millions before it was legal. Some died, countless suffered, Coat hangers and Lysol abortions are not horror fiction. They're realities. Isn't that necessity? Isn't that life or death? I thought that was such a compelling and moving passage, really, because um, I think we're now the you know the world is changing. You know, we have a new, much more conservative court. Um, we're now have six states where uh, there's only one abortion clinic. Mm -hmm. And um, even though you said in your community, there are doctors who do provide uh, mefepristone or RU486, mm -hmm. um, it's still difficult to access. And, um, you know, the vast majority of women still get their abortions through abortion clinics and with very few complications. Mm -hmm. um, but now it looks like, um, you know, we may be facing a time where in some states, women will not be able to get abortion and will have to travel. And I just wonder, you know, what your thoughts are about that and kind of what your thoughts are for your daughters, um, you know, what that, what that means um, for their futures. Well, that's a double, that's a double question. Yes. <laughs> Let's start with the first part. And I'll, yeah, I'm curious because now you moved to Pennsylvania, so, you know. <laughs> I'll answer it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't know what we're going to do in yeah. terms, you know, we, we've seen a change 
in the Supreme Court. Uh, we have, and if we have to be honest about what it has been like to live in this country, which is that the curtailing of reproductive health care predates Trump. This has been a long fight uh, against women's health care. This is not a new thing. This is a, this is this. These are old policies that are becoming more and more severe and successful in their aim. So I've thought a lot about uh, what it means for pro-choice uh, people to be able to advocate for women and mothers. If we are going to live in a country in which we are, um, in essence, a forced birth country, we need to provide for women at work. We need to make sure that they have equal pay. We need to make sure that we can discuss uh, the logistics of traveling for a termination at our employment, at our places of employment, because at this point, the discussion of abortion is so taboo. I couldn't even ma imagine it, imagine yeah. bringing it up to my boss. But in fact, I would have needed to be able to bring it up to my boss in order to get those two weeks off. I think we need to think about what it means to provide paid time off to women who need to travel for weeks to go uh, get a pregnancy termination. Uh, and I think that we absolutely need and it's harder in small towns like Morgantown, where I lived, to provide mm -hmm. adequate and substantial child care to women so they can remain in the workforce. Because all of those are the penalties of having, uh, you know, the loss of a job and employment, um, uh, an economic future, uh, a future where we, where we live up to our, you know, our potentials and desires. Those are the consequences of living in a country where women are denied reproductive health care. Also, adequate education for the children who, who live in those families. Like, these are the things I'm thinking about because I don't know if we fight the Supreme Court I don't know if that's going to work, but I know so many people who who feel, you know, that women women deserve the right to choose, and we need to implement those policies at work. As far as I'm concerned, and we we need to go above the government in that way. That's what yeah, I, think I think. You know, we, you know, there's so much more that could be done to support women and families. I mean, I think in in families in that context. And I did think it was, um, you know, you you raised this whole issue about like you found out you were pregnant and you were like, oh God, like what am I going to do for childcare? What am I going to, you know, basic things like, and what am I going to tell them? And you even had you mentioned that you had guilt um, talking to your employer when you got pregnant with Iris mm -hmm. about like, oh my God, this woman is pregnant. You know that that so many women, you know, it's like it's it's very hard to navigate. You you know. Even if you want the pregnancy, you know, it's something that you planned. It's still, we still don't have the supports and the infrastructure there. Everything from paid leave to, um, you know, high quality childcare and education. Mm -hmm. I, I was really struck um, in, you know, when they were having this whole debate in Alabama about the, you know, basically banning abortion. One of the legislators, I'm, I can't remember her name, who was trying to expand Medicaid uh, for women, because in Alabama, 60 days at postpartum, unless you make more than, I think it's 18% of the poverty level, which is $4,000 a year, you are no longer eligible for Medicaid, but that was not expanded. So we don't support even women who have babies in terms of making sure that they have access to healthcare 
afterwards in many places. So, and there are so many women because of the closures of these clinics. I mean, there are more false front clinics in the in the United States than there are real women's healthcare clinics that provide reproductive health care. If we're not providing women with birth control, how 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 are we going to be able to to stop them from making the choice to to need to have a termination of pregnancy in the first place? You know, the thing in that that moment that you mentioned in the book where I was worried about Iris, you know, telling my boss that I was pregnant with Iris, um, and they they said, "Does this mean you're quitting your job?" When I yeah. when I when I told them that <laughs> I was pregnant with Iris, and I you know I mistook that moment. Uh, as one, and I think that it's a discussion we need to have, obviously, about pregnancy and ambition and thinking that a woman who wants to be a mother is somehow less ambitious than a woman who chooses not to have children. But that that conversation is no longer valid when we live in a society where motherhood is no longer a choice and birth control is no longer prescribed, <laughs> right? So, and also, I think, you know, my boss might have been thinking to themselves, how is Krista going to pay for this $400 a week childcare with the salary that I know we pay her, <laughs> right? Do you think your boss had that thought? I think that's the generous that's thought the that I have now. Um, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe. I don't, you know, I don't know. But, but that conversation yeah. left fear in me. It left substantial fear in me because when I found out I was having a third child, I thought, oh my God, what am I going to tell them now? I've worked my whole life to be a professor and I think this might be it. I look like I just don't cut it. <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about some of those issues and about, um, you know, who's at risk for poor access and kind of how, you know, it looks Everything looks, you know, on the surface, you're a professor, um, you know, you have a job, you know, and a lot of the work that I do professionally focuses on the impact of policies on access to care and coverage for women, and particularly those are who are at risk for poor access. Mm -hmm. And there are literally millions of women across the country who are in that situation. Mm -hmm. But um, on the surface, you don't appear to be in that group. Mm -hmm but you had difficulty getting access to abortion care and honestly, access to quality pregnancy-related care, prenatal care, and right. your child did not get good access to high-quality care. Um, and you are an educated white woman with a full-time job, benefits, including health insurance, probably, right? Yes. Um, and you said your, you had your husband's insurance, which was very... Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't clear whether that was when you were in California or um, he, he kept his health. He he had a union based job through television writing that he has been able to keep the health insurance for still, even though he's not working right now at this moment. Um, well, you, you bring up an excellent point. So I, there are several things that I, you know, that I have to say about that. Um, so I wrote this book because I realized that I'm a white woman. I'm an educated woman. I'm a professor at a university, I'm a published author, and, I, and, and it was hard for me. And I thought, what is going on with all of these women who have so much less than I have? And I felt that I must tell this story because I know that a lot of women in that position don't have the platform that I have to be able to tell a personal story like this. I thought one of the ways in which 
you know, to change the conversation about reproductive health care was to personalize it in this way, to write it in a visceral way that people could feel when they wrote it when, or when they read it. So I could change minds in that way. I will also say that, you know, um, poverty follows us. A poverty mentality follows us. I was raised in a home by a single mother who was a waitress. I was the first in my family to go to college. Um, I, I paid my way through college waiting tables. I lived for many years of my life in a trailer park. I was no stranger to domestic violence, heroin use, sexual assault, and I believe and I beat the odds by getting this job. I do think that my ability to be able to sustain myself in a profession which so many people have trust funds or something to fall back on because the pay is low to begin with. I didn't have that. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I <laughs> it was just me. <laughs> it was just me. And <laughs> I, I think, um, you know, my, my, my origin story plays a part in this too because I, I was raised, I was raised amongst women who, you know, were house cooks and housemaids. And it was hard to feel that I was much different than they were because that is my family. And that mentality stayed with me. Yeah. I, you know, it was interesting. There was a, a, a passage where you were looking at the other women who live in West Virginia with their like second homes and their beautiful gardens. And I think that sometimes also we don't really um, recognize that maybe they were struggling with similar things that, you know, the package always looks so good um, that, you know, and, and we are right now in a culture right now where everything is so curated, everybody on their Facebook has their beautiful, you know, and, you know, their, their good life and the, on Instagram, everything is very beautiful and curated when, you know, inside there's a lot of, uh, turmoil and instability and, and fear, but we have this compulsion to put this you know, very nice exterior, you know, and um, mm -hmm. I think it it happens to all women. Um, and I think that, you know, then we have, you know, a lot of women who don't have um, all of those, you know, assets and ability and mm -hmm. struggling with that. We do. And I think that I, I straddled a world between those two places. Yeah. And um I, you know, I, one thing that I hope for this book is that, that we can, uh, that, that I can somehow encourage women to be able to speak toward, uh, you know, about their economic situations in that way, and that it will be easier. But I also do think, you know, one thing I heard, and I'm sure you've heard this a lot, is I believe in the right to choose, but I would never have an abortion myself. Yes. And that's fine. That's a personal decision. But saying that out loud is making it's making a statement that allows for the person who is thinking about terminating a pregnancy to think that there's something wrong with that desire for themselves as well. And I think that we need to change our language, even amongst pro-choice women, uh, about how we discuss abortion with our friends and family in that way. Yeah, I think you make an excellent point, you know, in terms of really being open and hearing what our what our words are actually saying and conveying. And I don't think we do enough of that. Um, I want to switch a little bit because I um, am just really curious. Um, I imagine you, you, this is 
an incredibly personal memoir. And um, I just have to ask as you, you know, when you write a memoir, how do you kind of approach this? I have never done this and I can't even remember what I did yesterday. And that's kind of, so I'm curious about the process about, you know, how do you, how do you write? How do you approach a memoir? Um, how do you find time to do it with three small children? Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that process? Well, um, I was given a very short time period to write this book. My publisher wanted a book uh, for the election because they want they wanted a book that could have the most impact um, on all of the things that we've been discussing today. You know, who would be elected and which Supreme Court, court justice justices would be selected. Um, so I was given four months to write this book with three small children, uh, two under two. <laughs> How I did that is a miracle. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> I'll tell you how I did it. My husband took over everything. I oh, ran away. To uh, he took care of our children. Uh, it's amazing, though, how many people will say that your husband is a hero for taking care of their children. Yeah, or your husband is babysitting. That was the one I always got. Is your husband babysitting? I'm like, no, that's what I do when I yeah. pay people. Yeah, yeah. So I had to, t I had to, I had to work, uh, do nothing but work. It was, it was me in a chair sitting and working. But this, you know, every, me every memoir is different. Uh, this one specifically has a lot to do with policy. It has a lot to do with the history of reproductive health care in the United States. And I wanted to make, I wanted to write a memoir that was both educational and personal. So the process for this book began with research and Re immersing myself in um, the research that you have devoted your life to uh, that I was not aware enough of to try to situate my story um, inside of that narrative so I, I could tell it um, and, and know that I, you know, that I was being as accurate as possible. So that was the first thing that I needed to do. I needed to educate myself about those policies. Mm -hmm. The second thing as a memoir, you know, as a memoir writer is I thought, how do I write a page turning book about reproductive health care? <laughs> so, <laughs> I wanted people to sit down with this book and feel like they were talking to their friend about something that we don't talk to each other about. So the years of, of being a reader and a student of writing, I, you know, I decided to take the approach to this for this book to write it in a way that was plot forward that kept the pages turning and situated my reader inside of the feeling that I felt at that moment, which was not okay. This, you know, this, this is a, I was, this is a book written in a very bare voice on purpose for that reason to deliver, to, to deliver the emotional story of curtailed uh, access to reproductive health care, while also educating the reader about things that they might not be aware of. And I have I have gotten so many letters from readers already shocked by the fact that that these you know that these laws exist. And I um, I think that you know that they were able to read that and understand it. Uh, in this book because it, it was being told to them in the way that I told it to them. So I, so. I mean, it's I, I just feel like kind of in my world, like this is over and over. We see this. I read this in the in the press, but that people don't don't have a sense of how. The how many barriers there are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, the reason this book had to be written for me was because I knew that I had the skill set to be able to deliver the story in that way because I have trained my entire life to do it. And do you, do you keep a journal? I mean, how do you like, how do you remember 
what happened? How do you fact check yourself? Because I know like you, I thought you did such a good job, like the, in the period, the early days when Keats was just a newborn, that kind of feverish pace that you have and you're like okay I just need to take a shower today you know and then not being able to nurse and just you have one thing to do which is keep your baby alive Mm -hmm. well um I have many rules for myself as a writer and one of them is distance and I disobeyed that rule (laughs) I wrote I wrote this book um after not very long after having had so those memories were fresh for me in a way that in, in other stories that I've told in my life, I had much more distance. But I also knew that the heat that exists in this book would not exist had I waited the five years to tell it. Also, I'm so glad that I did now because with the pandemic and with the even more significant lack of childcare that women are facing at this moment, mothers are, you know, dropping out of the workforce in mass. I don't know that I would have been able to write this book because I don't, I simply do not have the time to write this book now. Um, so I, I, wrote it very quickly and very close to the experience. And that experience was so difficult for me that it lived in my body in a way that I just remembered it. I, I And as a writer, you have to trust yourself to remember things adequately. Also, I ask people, um, the say for the narration of the birth of Keats's birth, for example. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that Keats's clavicle had been broken during a hard labor. I had to research what happens and why babies get stuck. And I asked my husband, I said, did his head look like this? Was he purple like this? And he said, yes, yes, that's what it was. And I realized, oh, okay, his clavicle was stuck in the birth canal and the midwife turned him out and it broke then, that's when it happened. But I didn't know that until I was writing the book. So there are so many ways in which writing this book educated me about the experience that I had. Yeah, that um, that was just so so disturbing um, to read that and to kind of make that discovery. And then you knew something was wrong with his arm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, mothers know, and a mother of three. I, I I've had I'd had three. You know, I'd had three birth experiences and two daughters that could move their arms and could latch just fine. And I I knew there was something wrong and was being told that there was nothing wrong. But you know, of course, we do know. Yeah. And then, you know, I just have to ask, you know, this is, um, you know, how do you think this is going to affect kind of, you know, in the future, your discussions with your son and with your daughters? And, you know, I mean, the truth is that our mothers, our grandmothers, our great grandmothers had the same experience that you have had, you know, maybe not, you know, identical, but that they've been pregnant. I know I heard my grandmother thought that she had a tumor and she was so upset to find out that it wasn't a tumor, that it was my mother and that she couldn't have an abortion. And this was at the you know turn of the century in Argentina. So, you know, this is not a, a new thing. It isn't a new thing. And of course I have so many yeah. questions, like how did your mother feel about that? <laughs> because you obviously know the story. So she- I know the story. Yeah. My mother told me her Yes, her stories, so. Well, my mother wanted to have an abortion when she found out that she was pregnant with me. And it was a story that I heard uh, my whole life. And it wasn't a story that was meant to shame me and to tell me 
I don't want you to be here. It was a story that my mother relayed to me as a young woman to let me know that choices were difficult and the choice to be a mother is difficult and that it was, she was afraid about how she would support these two baby twins in an abusive marriage. And she struggled immensely, you know, yeah. so woman to woman, she told me. And when I was a child, I knew too. But I think having a mother who was willing to share that story with me allowed me to write this book because her story of considering a termination of pregnancy with me did not hurt me. There was no moment that I thought my mother didn't love me, that she didn't want me here in this world. And it was that knowledge and the sharing of that story with me that made, that made me and makes me fairly certain that my son later in life will feel okay with it too. The thing is this, I had a choice. To, to tell this story and protect my son from a feeling that he may never have, or I could tell this story and possibly say to my daughters in 20 years, I did everything that I could to protect, to protect your health care. And this was in my power and there's not a lot in my power, <laughs> but it was in my power to share this story. And I did that. So you might have a chance that I didn't have uh, in to have that security. And I think that, my son will be proud of that. So he'll know this story. And you're, you know, you've illustrated something perfectly, which is we don't live our lives without knowing what happened to the family that we have. <laughs> he will know what happened just because he grew up in this house. It will, it will come out. I cannot protect him from everything. And it's not my job to do that either. He will have his own complex life story. And hopefully, you know, he will have uh, a mother that he thinks was strong enough to be able to stand up for what she thought was right and reasonable. And, and, and do you think this, is this experience has changed how you would have raised your daughter and son and how you would have talked to them? It's changed no. a lot of things. I'm a lot less of, I mean, I'm very mindful of, I'm not the kind of mother that takes my experience and puts that puts it on my children, especially as an identical twin. I really like to keep my 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 uh, you know my identity issues that I had with my sister away from my children. I will say that. So there's no way in which I want to you know to contaminate their lives with what happened to me. There's not that. There's that. But it has opened up a conversation with my daughter, my oldest daughter specifically, because she is old enough to remember Keats having the issues that uh, he had when he was younger. You know, when he was born, and she saw us leave West Virginia. She saw the amount of despair I was in after Keats was born and she stood I was working one day and, and on this book I was writing and she stood in the doorway and she looked at me and she said mama did we leave West Virginia because it's a bad place for women wow and I said yes yes I yes we did we left it so you could have chance a chance that you might not have had there and so I have opened up a feminist conversation with my children <laughs> just by way of having written this book even quietly in my office. And, and I'm curious because you're still at West Virginia. Are you still? I am. I am. Yes. Yes. I and still. So what kind of response have you gotten from your community at the university? I haven't gotten much of a response. I have to say, I have not gotten much of a response from the community of my university. I have gotten um, a large response from the community of my of my small town of Morgantown. Lots of women. Oh, 
yeah, oh. uh, thanking me for telling this. Tell, tell me more about that. Yeah. Um, I have made great friends with the midwife who uh, delivered, who delivered Keats and uh, who had subsequently been let go of, from that job af uh, after being right near retirement because they didn't think that they need, needed midwifery in the, in the hospital. Yeah. And uh she then moved on to another hospital that closed because of COVID. And they, uh, she, you know, she wrote me and she said, uh, thank you for writing this book. I see that my mission now is to protect children from a healthcare system that is dangerous. Thank you. <laughs> and, you know, there's been that kind of conversation. There's been conversations about women from, I've heard from women who were unable to get to Charleston to have a termination of pregnancy and how hard it has been for them. There's just been, you know, letters from young women who have gone to doctors and have been told they're farther along in a pregnancy than they are. So they can't go get a termination of pregnancy elsewhere. I've heard all sorts of stories as a result of having written this book. So you've really given given them an outlet and made them feel not so alone. I have. And that way, you know, I wonder had somebody been sharing these stories with me, if it would have changed my experience yeah. of that. And I, I think it would have. So I hope that this book, I hope that the women who are in this experience now can find this book and realize they're not alone. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this is um I I have to say that it's um it's so important for women to hear these and to hear these stories and to read these stories because women do feel so alone and particularly at this, you know, I think at the time they have a pregnancy period is a difficult time, but um, I think, you know, having an unintended pregnancy, um, even if it's a, a child that is ultimately wanted, loved and wanted as yours, Yes. Makes it a very difficult time. Well, I really want to thank you so much for um, taking the time today. And I really wish you good luck. I imagine you're doing a book tour from your home right now. But. <laughs> yes, and thank you for taking the time with this book that you have. I, I really appreciate it. it. It was good to meet you. Great to meet you as well. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org.